I thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time. I pray that as we jump into your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit would be the one that leads, the one that guides, the one that teaches us this morning, and the one that um, gives me the words that you want me to say in Christ's name. Amen. By the way, when I pray that, that doesn't mean that I haven't prepared anything, and I'm just hoping the Holy Spirit will... <laughs> Why, can you open the door back there just so we get some air in here? Maybe it's just me, but you know me. I'm a with a sweating man. I wanted to, I want to ask you, um, have you ever wondered why that uh, different relationships that people have, that they struggle in those relations so much? You ever seen relationships seem to be struggling so much that they often just get so hard and so difficult that they completely break apart? I mean, take, take marriages that you know. Um, how about, do you know of any marriages that you know are unhealthy or have even ended in divorce? Uh, do you ever think to yourself, how in the world did that happen? How did it come to that, that they came to divorce? Or how about, how about families? Have you ever wondered why certain siblings or uh, parents of a child simply refuse to talk to one another? Have you ever seen that in a situation before in a family? They just cannot get along with each other. How about within a church? Have you ever uh, known people who just can't get along with other people in the church? I mean, some of you, like I do, might even know people that have actually left a church because of conflict that they that could not be resolved with another church member. Well, the truth is that whether it's marriages, whether it's families, or any, any kind of even relationships within the church, the reality is that there's going to be breakup. It's when, when breaks happen, when these difficult things happen, they do so for a reason. And typically when these kind of things happen that I just described happen, they happen for the reason is because there's been unwillingness to forgive. There's been a certain, someone in that relationship has been unwilling to forgive because the reality is that we are all sinful and broken people. So that really means that with any relationship, whether it's marriage or a family, siblings, or, or even in the church, offenses are going to happen. It's just inevitable. They are going to happen. And there will be times when extending forgiveness is going to be the only thing that's going to heal those relationships. The only thing. In our study in the Gospel of Matthew We've come now to the last of three sermons where I told you we've been looking at Matthew chapter 18, in which we are seeing really this whole chapter is all about Christian ethics or the qualities which should characterize the relationship that followers of Jesus have with one another. And we looked at some pretty interesting stuff in here because remember we talked about the reason that this is such an important subject it's because Jesus knows that the enemy's favorite tactic in his aim to keep us from growing and to keep us moving more and being more like Christ is if he can keep our relationships within the church from functioning the way that they should. We don't usually think about that, but this whole chapter has been dedicated to that whole principle. We have seen that as followers of Christ's body, we have been given a tremendous and a sacred responsibility. And that responsibility is to spur one another on towards Christ-likeness. That's what we are to do, to spur one another on Christ-likeness as we live out these healthy relationships. It's not something we do apart from relationships. It's something that we are called to do within relationships. We have seen that, that the childlike humility that we share as followers of Jesus results in this deep 
care for one another that really stems from the fact, remember we talked about this, how that we are all one. Remember we talked about we are one in the body of Christ, that we belong to one another. We're family. So there's going to, as in many dysfunctions, there's dysfunction in a lot of families, there's going to tend to be some of that in, in our family as well. But God is calling us to a high standard to spur one another along in Christ's likeness as we are part of this family. Now, we saw that this whole subject, remember, at the beginning of Matthew 18, the whole subject was kicked off by Jesus. One of his disciples asked, well, the disciples saying, Jesus, which one of us is going to be the most important? When your kingdom comes in, which one of us is going to be the most important in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus uses this question really as a springboard to teaching them what it means to, remember we looked at not only to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, not only to be in the kingdom of heaven, but what it means to truly be great in the kingdom of heaven. And we saw that, that Jesus, according to Jesus, being a part or even being in the kingdom, being great in the kingdom of heaven is evidenced by how we, with childlike humility, treat one another within the body of Christ. Did you ever think about that? We always say, hey, I prayed a prayer, I'm in. It's all good. We're done. No, this whole chapter has been about helping Christians to understand, no, no, no. You, you, it's not because you just prayed a prayer. It's not just because you went to a camp, not because you went forward. No, there's, there needs to be evidence of the fact that you truly are in the kingdom. And that's what he's been talking about in this whole chapter. Okay? In verses 1 through 9, we saw that we show our love for one another when we are willing to confront one another when someone has strayed off or gone off into sin, or wandered off into sin. And we saw that we do this ultimately because we want to bring them back. We want to win them back, not shame them and say, oh, you don't, Christians shouldn't act like that. No. Our whole thing is we want to bring them back to the fellowship with the Father and with one another to win them back, okay? And in verses 10 through 20, we saw that how the true, when we truly value one another, we're willing to confront when people have strayed off into sin, Okay? And also we saw that we, when we cause people to stumble, we're not to cause people to stumble. That's actually what verses 1 through 9 was talking about. We don't want to cause people to stumble by how we act, and we can do that by living out, a, by pursuing personal holiness. That's how we do it. Well, in today's passage, we're going to see how necessary and possible, believe it or not, necessary and possible it is to extend forgiveness to those within the body of Christ who have sinned against us or wronged us. We're going to see how he shows us how important that is, but even how possible it is. In or really, so in order that we can enjoy the life to the fullest in the kingdom of heaven, what he wants us to do, not just to muck along going, yeah, church is okay, Christian fellowship is okay. No, he wants us to experience what it's like to be a part of this kingdom of heaven together. Not that we're all lovey-dovey and we're all best friends, but that we get everything possible out of this relationship that we have with one another. And once again, this whole thing now, this whole thing, this whole lesson that we're going to be talking about today stems from a question that's asked by one of Jesus' disciples. Look at verse, let's start by looking at verses 21 and 22 in chapter 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, 
I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Remember, Jesus had just got done talking about how you need to forgive, you know, you need to forgive your brother, you need to, you know, when they sin, or you need to go after, he's talking about, you need to go after them, you need to go confront them on their sin. So obviously, I'm sure that this gets Peter wondering, and of course, when Peter wonders something, he does it out loud. So Peter's wondering, hmm, okay, well, sin, oh, what about when they sin against me? What about when that happens to me? So I'm kind of sure he's wondering how often he needs to forgive his fellow brother and sister when they sin. What's the limit? When do I finally say enough? Where, where is that line? Okay. And Jesus, well, first of all, you know, what Peter's probably doing here, I would suspect that what, G, what Peter is doing here in saying seven times, should I do it seven times? He's probably trying to come off as really magnanimous or extremely giving and kind. Seven times. Should I do seven? Because the reality is back then, the, and the rabbis taught back then that they were to forgive someone up to three times. Okay, if you do it up to, that's good, because that's, well, that's, that's plenty. Okay, just do up to three times. So Peter probably figured that Jesus would like praise him and pat him on the back and think, man, what an amazing guy. You said seven? Wow, you are a patient guy, Peter. I can't believe you did that. Now, some translate, we're going to see that in this, though, that the translations are a little different. But first of all, um, as altruistic or as, as uh, charitable as Peter might have wanting to come off and say that willingness to forgive, G, you know, Jesus, really what he's going to do here is he's going to raise the bar. Remember, we've been talking about that, how Jesus constantly raised the bar when the disciples come to him and say, this is what we should do, right? He goes, well, let me tell you. And he goes off into some really cool way of telling them, let me show you what it really is like, Okay. Now, you'll notice, some, I don't know if some of you might have a translation. Some translations say 77, 70 times. Some say 77 times. Some t- say 70 times 7. Okay, I don't have time to get into why that all happened. That's not a discrepancy at all. It's simply a dri- difference in uh, translating process that went on with two different types of early translations, okay? The Septuagint and other things, how they did it. So don't worry about it because really that's not the issue, Okay. Whether, the, whether it's supposed to be 77 times or 70 times 7, that's not the point of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus, often as he did, what he's using is he's using exaggeration. He's using the language of hyperbole here. Yeah, he wants to say things that are just crazy, outlandish kind of things. The point he is making that not that there's a certain large amount of number of times that you need to forgive your brother and sister when they sin against you. That's not the point at all. The point is you don't stop, get to a place and stop. It's basically, say, he's saying forgiveness is limitless. You don't stop. You never stop forgiving. What Jesus is doing here is he's showing that the spirit of genuine forgiveness has no boundaries. Okay? It's limitless. limitless. It's, like, it's like if you were to ask me, how often should I love my wife? What a crazy question. That's, an, that's, a, that's a, a dumb question because really it's a state of the heart, not a matter of calculation. I don't think about how often I should love her. No, I think about I love her from my heart. There's no limit to that. Oh. <laughs> well, not at all, not at all. So that's what, that's, what Jesus, that's what Jesus is saying here. <clears throat> it's a matter of the heart, not calculation. I mean, think about it. If you and I sin just once a day, I mean, wouldn't that be nice? 
if we just sinned once a day, okay, and that, and that would mean 365 times a year. Now do the math. 365 times times however old you are. Some of you, that's a heck of a lot of sin. Okay, but okay, 365 times, okay, time every year. For some of you, that's a lot, but just imagine this. Just imagine if God kept account of all those. Just imagine if there was a record keeper up there, or if God was a record keeper keeping track of those sins. If he kept a record of all of them. We know that because of Jesus, the great news is because of Jesus, God does not count our sin. He's like, oh, you did it again? I thought we were over that. I, th- I, th- I thought we had licked that one. I thought that was done. Pfft. I'm going to start keeping track of that one because, man, we've, we've talked about that. It doesn't, do, doesn't do that at all. In describing our relationship God that, will, that God will have with his people, the Old Testament prophet says this, for I will forgive their wickedness, talking about us, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Now we think, well, that's impossible for God to forget. You gotta, what are you going to tell God what he can and can't do? He, will, he just, I will, not, I will not remember those things. I'm not going to keep account. See, the point is God doesn't keep count. We shouldn't either. If he's not going to keep count, we should not be keeping count either. Exactly. Perfect forgiveness. As one pastor I read this week says, as God in Christ forgives us again and again and again, so we are to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ again and again and again. Some of you are thinking, yeah, no problem. I haven't had a problem with that. Other of you are thinking, it's not easy. Because it doesn't mean that we allow allow ourselves to be a doormat or we excuse the wrongs that people have done to us. Yet what we're going to see as we dive deeper into this is first and foremost, Jesus wants us to understand that this is a heart issue. We like to take it as an issue of this versus this, this is more wrong. No, this is a heart issue, and that's what he's going to do as he talks about this. Now, in order to help Peter to fully understand this issue that it's a heart issue, Jesus goes on to vividly illustrate this idea with a parable about a king and his servants. If you've been in church many amount of time, you've heard this so many times, this, this story. Now, make sure you guys understand a parable is really, a parable is really essentially, it's a heavenly story with an earthly meaning, okay? He's trying to, he's trying to, I mean, sorry, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Said that wrong. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And Jesus uses them, he used them all the time to illustrate profound uh, spiritual truths, okay? And once again, we're going to see that he used hyperbole or exaggeration quite often in order to get his point across, to really bring it home. Jesus said some pretty ridiculous things that we can't take all of them as so literal. He just used this hyperbole to get people to go, oh, okay. oh wow, I, I get what you're saying here. And we're going to see he does it here. Look at verses 23 and 24 as how Jesus sets up this parable. Look what he says. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Okay, so right off the bat here, we see that Jesus wants to make sure that Peter and the other disciples and us understand how forgiveness and the kingdom of heaven go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. Remember, we learned 
long time ago in this series, we've learned that the idea of the kingdom of heaven really can be stated as the reign and the rule of God in the hearts and the lives of those who submit to his authority. That's that's the kingdom of heaven, okay? That's kind of the micro part of kingdom of heaven. In a broader sense, the kingdom of heaven is God's reign and rule over all things in the universe, everything. But far as us personally, this is what the kingdom of heaven, what does it mean to be a part into the kingdom of heaven? It means to have the reign and rule of God in your heart and in your lives as we submit to him. So what Jesus is saying is that if you are going to claim to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you must come to understand forgiveness from a kingdom perspective. It has to happen that way. So Jesus says it can be likened to a king who had some servants. Now, obviously, these servants must have had, uh, particular ones, must have had some pretty big responsibilities, responsibilities enough where they needed to have a significant amount of money in order to perform their particular responsibilities. Now the king is saying, okay, it's time to settle up. I want to settle all the accounts with these servants. So we see that one servant is brought to him who him one, he owes him 10,000 talents. Now, what, we don't really know what that is. We just think, okay, that's a lot. Well, in order to be clear, this is an astronomical amount of money. 10,000 was the largest amount for which the Greek term exists for a number, okay? And a talent was the largest known money of that, of that time. So when you put these two together, basically, in our terms today, it's basically saying, this servant owed this guy a zillion dollars, Okay? That's how we would say it today. A zillion dollars. I mean, more, more money than we could possibly ever imagine, put, wrap our heads around. Way more money than anybody could possibly ever repay. Remember, once again, Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's using exaggeration. He wants people to see. Because when, when he must have said that, people went, what? That's an amazing amount of money. Well, look what happens in verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that they had, and payment to be made. Now, obviously selling his, everything, himself and his wife and children and everything he had, that wouldn't obviously pay back his enormous debt, but at least the king would get something out of this guy, okay? He gets something by selling all them. So look, but look how the servant responds now in verses 26 and 27. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything, And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, mouths must have just dropped. When people were here, they just, they just, they must be blown away. Because obviously, this the servant's plea for more time to pay off his debt is ludicrous. Not everybody known it would have taken hundreds, if not thousands, of lifetimes for him to pay it off. There's no way he could do it. That we see here that out of pity, literally what this means, this word means, the king had compassion on him. He forgives his enormous debt. You, you want to get a sense for that word? If you're here when you've studied before how when Jesus, when the people came to him, remember crowds came to him and wanted to be healed. And remember it, said the, it says, and Jesus had compassion for them. That's the same word here. His heart just went out like, oh. I want to do something. I need to do something for this person. That's what is happening here. Now, the message to us here is that just as this king 
had compassion on the servant and forgave this astronomical debt, so God in Christ has compassion on us and has forgiven us our sin, a debt that we were absolutely, unequivocally unable to repay, impossible to repay. It's like basically saying, it's like a zillion mile chasm between us and God, okay? Oh wow, God's a zillion miles away, and his goodness is a zillion miles away, and the only thing that can get us to him is the cross of Christ. That's it. There's nothing else I can do to get across that zillion mile chasm. Now this servant wanted, his servant wanted a second chance to repay his debt. In a sense, what he really wanted to do is saying, give me a chance to work myself into your good graces, okay? Let me, let me show you how good of a guy I am. I know I can't pay it off, but let me show you how good I, I am, okay? But what he got was complete forgiveness, motivated by this king's compassion. And you know, I think we're a lot like this guy. I know I am. I think we can be a lot like this servant, or at least to be tempted to be like this servant, to try to, to, try to negotiate with God and make a deal with him to appease uh, our pay for our sin or rebellion. Ever done that before? You know you've done something wrong, and you go, okay, I know I'm forgiven, but I should, I should probably still do something. <laughs> I should probably still do a little more to get in God's good graces. Okay, I'll go to church more. I won't be like the average attendee, they say, in America today is less than twice a month. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be regular. You know what? I am going to start reading my Bible more. I'm going to download that Bible app. I'm going to listen to it in my car. I'm going to, you know, no more, you know, no more, no more Crook and Kipe or whatever their names are, the sports stuff. I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to really do, I'm going to try harder. Ever find yourself in that place before? Ever find yourself in a place where you know you've messed up, you know you're forgiven, but you feel like you still got to get in with God's graces? Really, it's, it's impossible. Like this servant, our debt is astronomical. We can't pay it back. We can't get into God's good graces at all. It's huge. It's a zillion-mile chasm. Our only choice is to fall on our knees and plead for mercy from God. That's, that's the only option. There is no other option. There is no quibbling. There is no, oh, help me. There's nothing. That's what happens when we, get, when we first come to Christ, but also as we grow in our relationship with Jesus. We got to get away from this thought that he's this guy up there. He sees me, kind of balances things out a little bit. We got to understand more what grace really means. I was at uh, yesterday, I um, went to the Giants game yesterday, and I had, I had no idea that it was Christian Fellowship Day. Um, they lost. I don't know what that means then. But, um, but it was Christian Fellowship. Have you ever heard of Phil Wickham? Phil Wickham, the artist, was there, and afterwards, we all got to go onto the field, and my son and his wife and my grandson were with. And uh, one of the questions, and Dave Dravecki, those of you that have been around the Bay Area know Dave Dravecki, he kind of hosted the whole thing, and they had five of the Giants players come on up and uh, uh, I don't follow baseball too heavily. Um, uh, who was one of the guys? Uh, I, can't re- I don't remember. They're all pitchers, so that's all. Um, and uh, he asked, one of the questions he asked them, tell us what grace means to you. And it was so great to hear these professional baseball players that people know talk about the grace of God, something they couldn't deserve. They, they don't deserve. They couldn't earn it in any way whatsoever. And to hear guys that are superstars making lots of money talk about there's nothing they could do to earn it. 
And it's such a blessing to them. And they were talking about all the things that God had done to them. It really was really encouraging. We need to understand what God's grace is, how he lavishes it on us. Not because we deserve it, because he just has compassion. He loves us. That's who he is. Okay, now the scene of this story is going to move from the king's presence, the hall where all this took place. Now it's going to go into the world of the servant, okay? Now you would expect that this servant would just be like, Oh my gosh, I cannot believe what happened. He would just be a changed man, more willing than ever to treat his fellow man with kindness and compassion and with grace. Yet we're going to see something a little different. Look at verses 28 to 30. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. I will repay you. I'll pay you back. He refused and went and put him in prison until he could pay the debt. Okay, so this servant had just been forgiven this astronomical, huge, massive debt. And he gets out and he finds one of his fellow servants that owes him a hundred denarii. What this means, that actual amount, what you, just so you know, I, wanna, I have to read it so I get it right. One six hundred thousandth of the debt that he owed the king. All right? Pretty small. Basically the equivalent of about four months of wages. That's what he owed this guy. Now notice the second servant makes this same plea to the guy. Wait a second. No, don't do it. Wait, have mercy on me, okay? Don't, don't do that. Let, let me, I will pay you back. It's the same thing that the other guy said to the king. Yet instead of sharing with his fellow servant the same kindness that was shown to him, what instead, he acts violently and mercilessly to him. He really goes after him. Look what he does. First, he starts choking him for crying out loud. He just starts choking this fellow servant. No, pay me back, pay you back. And, he can't, and he's not able to do it. He's not legally permitted to sell his servant like the king was going to do. So what he does, he does what he is legally allowed to do. He throws him into debtor's prison. Okay? So basically what he was making his fellow servant do was do hard labor until it was paid off, until he paid off his debt. Crazy. Now, the king had just forgiven him this enormous debt. You would think that that would have an impact on how he treated this guy. Yet instead, his heart is filled with no mercy, no patience, no forgiveness, no gratitude, no grace whatsoever. We would call that today a hard heart. That's what he had. Didn't matter what had been done to him. Didn't matter. Sometimes we think, how do people act like that? Why do they act like that? Don't they know? They know. Their heart is hard. Our heart is hard. We're not willing to do what we know we should do. What we know has been done to us, we still won't, aren't willing to do it to others because our heart is hard. Picture it this way. Our debt to God is like, picture it, put in your mind, like this. our debt to God is like the distance from the earth to the sun. Okay? Super, super far. Our debt or the things that we do against one another, the sins that we commit against one another, is like uh, San Francisco to L.A. Okay? Now, that's, that's a distance. I mean, I don't enjoy driving that, you know, I-5. I, I'm not, not, but so that's a long, that is a long way. But it's nothing compared to the distance of the sun from here. So the re, here's the reality. If God is able to forgive us that amount that is like from here to the sun, we should be able to bridge the gap from here to L.A., what he's saying here. Look at, get a picture of this in your head is what he's saying. I, I really think it's easy for us to forget 
the incredible debt that's been paid for us, the debt that's been forgiven, and is continually forgiven. Yet hold on in comparison to this small little debt that someone has done against us, this small little thing that we say is so big and it hurts so bad, but if we were to compare it to the debt that we've been forgiven, it's nothing. It's so small. It's so minor. Micah 6.8, love this verse, says the Lord, has told, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. Do what is right to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To love mercy. Not just to be willing to show mercy, but to love it. To want to, to want to, that's why I want to be. I want to be a person of mercy. I want mercy to embody who I am. That's what he says here. Well, the servant's behavior doesn't go unnoticed, we see here. Um, look, what happens, look what happens next. He says, when his fellow servants, in verse 31 says, when his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they're greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and you should have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. See, so upon seeing how this servant is treating his fellow servant, the other servants are like, they're distraught over this. Basically, the word he's talking about, they are saddened, saddened to the point where they're just upset. Oh my gosh, how could this happen? Look what just happened to him. And he's going to treat him like this? So they go tell him. Obviously, they felt like he should have compassion after what had just happened to him. He should understand, especially the tiny debt that was actually owed to him compared to his. If you just want to compare those two, he should have incredible mercy on them. And this is really the core meaning of this parable, okay? The, the core meaning of this is, person is the one who receives so much compassion and so much forgiveness of debt should show others mercy. In other words, if lavish mercy and forgiveness are characteristics of God, they should be also be the characteristics of his people. Okay? If lavish mercy and forgiveness are characteristics of God, they should also be the characteristics of his people. Or really, we can sum it up where the Apostle Paul wrote this in Ephesians. He said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And we love that verse when it comes to people that we like that offend us, don't we? We, we, we don't mind. We, oh, yeah, you know, she's my friend. I really need to forgive her. I really need to. That, that debt is not that big. Not the people that just automatically annoy us. The people that automatically kind of just get under our skin a little bit, that are just so different than us. We just say, you know, they're just, that's a little bit different, isn't it? It's quite, a bit, it's quite a bit harder, quite a bit harder. So I, I, when God says to be tenderhearted, he's saying it to be that to everybody. Be that to everybody. So look what happens to this sermon. Look at verses 34 and 35. And the anger of his master, and, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother 
from the heart. So we see here that the king's resp- the response of the king to this unforgiving servant is in his justified anger, he delivers him to the jailers. Or what this, some of your versions even say this, he was delivered to the jailers whose main job was to torture people. That's what their job was. That's what these specific jailers, these were torturers, that he's being sent to torturers, the ones that inflict torture until they can get what they want out of them. And it says he's tortured until he's able to pay back. What Jesus is illustrating for us is that God does not take lack of forgiving one another lightly. He does not take it lightly. First he sees here, look what it does. He's telling us here that it angers God. When we don't forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ, it angers God. And we don't want to think also, whoa, 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 whoa. God gets angry? Of course he does. Sure he does, but it's not the same kind of anger that you and I have by any means, not at all. You see, God's anger is a byproduct of his righteousness. Do you hear that? God's anger is a byproduct of his righteousness. Since God personified, I mean, he's the very personification of goodness, okay? That means then that anything that abuses or perverts or disrespects his goodness in his sight, it is evil. God doesn't work in the gray at all. God is good. God is totally good. So whatever perverts that good is evil in his sight. That's how serious he takes this stuff. And therefore, it demands his righteous anger and justified judgment. We've talked about this before. Remember, we talked about God's judgment before and how that's a, that's a tricky topic to talk about. God's judgment? God's wrath? If God didn't have wrath, God wouldn't be the God that we all need. We need God's wrath. We need God's anger to show how incredibly holy he is, how incredibly just he is. Does that make sense? His incredible holiness and his incredible goodness is shown by how angry and how mad he gets at sin and and mad at evil and how much he hates it. That's a good God. The world wants to say, no, a good God would say, let's not get so touchy. Let's not, wait a second, that's not that bad. No, I want a good that is perfect, a God that's perfectly good, that's good, the ultimate good. That means he's going to be disgusted by evil, my evil, but he's still going to love me. Okay, you see, God in his, it's a byproduct of his right. The second thing we see here in this passage is that we choose, and this is a rough one, and when we choose not to forgive our brother or sister in Christ, God in his righteous anger, and because he loves us so much, hands us over to some kind of spiritual discipline. Because he loves us so much, when we do something that is evil, as his children, he is going to discipline us in order, not just because he, I can't stand when you do that. No, it's it's ultimately so that to remove from us whatever it is that's keeping us from having a heart of mercy, to having a heart of compassion, to having the heart of God. He's going to do whatever it takes. Because he loves us. I mean, think about it when we discipline our children. I discipline my children because I love them, because I wanted to change their, them to change their behavior. I want to see that selfish action. I want to see that change, not for my sake, but for their sake. That's what God, the perfect father, is doing here. He's do, he does it with us. 
And in this case, he will do it until we repent from our unforgiving heart. This is the love of God. This is what God calls us to. And speaking of how God discipline, how his discipline really proves his love for us, I love this passage. Hebrews chapter 12 says this. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you for the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who never is never disciplined by his father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not really his children at all. Wow. You ever wonder why life is going sideways? Difficulties happening? Or why you aren't experiencing the joy and the contentment that your life ought to? As a follower of Jesus, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. Where's the joy? Where's, where is the contentment? Well, it could be a variety of things, but it could be that your loving heavenly Father is using these difficult times or difficult life circumstances to discipline you in order to get you to see and to change your unforgiving heart. That's how he works. Kingdom living means forgiving those that have sinned against us. And being people that have been forgiven so much, this is something that we should be able to understand. Or at least we should be able to start, be able to slowly get our heads around. Again, as John MacArthur writes this, he says, never are you more like God than when you forgive. Never. Never are you less like God when you will not forgive. Let me ask you this morning as we close, is there a brother or sister in Christ who has truly wronged you? They have sinned against you that you know now you need to extend forgiveness to. Well, the reality is that truly forgiving someone from the heart who has wronged us is not simple. It's not as easy as just, okay, I forget. It's not. We know that it's a very difficult thing. Yet when we remind ourselves and we keep in our memory, however we do it, by reading scripture, by putting those things in front of our the scriptural cards or whatever, the scripture in front of our face, if we remind ourselves that God, in his amazing compassion for us, forgave our astronomical debt, a debt that we could never repay, it's then really only then oftentimes that we are able to forgive one another again and again and again and again. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that is, wow, so powerful, so convicting, so um, sometimes seems so out of our realm, and it is, but we're thankful, God, that your word is living and active in us 
and that you use your word to change us. I pray for myself and my friends here, Father God, that, that if there are people in their lives, especially, Father, as we get ready to take communion, Lord, I pray that we would examine our hearts, examine our hearts and know that if there are people, especially within the body of Christ, that we need to extend forgiveness to, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us in that right now. Help us to not come to this table, not take these elements without having our heart willing to be changed and washed and impacted by you and your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Come on up, Joe.